country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Purdy from the Australia Indonesia Centre. My guest today is Norman Eriksson Pasaribu, a writer and poet whose work draws on the experiences of the queer community and his own life as a writer of Batak descent and Christian background. Norman's debut poetry collection, Sergius Manchari Bakus, Sergius Seeks Bakus, won the 2015 Jakarta Arts Council Poetry Competition and was a finalist for the 2016 Katulistiwa Literary Award for Poetry. In 2017, he received the Young Author Award from the Southeast Asia Literary Council. Norman's book of poetry has just been published in English translation, and today we talk with him about his writing, about being young and queer in Indonesia, and about the literary scene. Hello, Norman. Thank you for being there, and welcome to Talking Indonesia. Hi, Gemma. I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. I've just picked up a copy of your book from a bookshop here in Melbourne, Sergius Six Bacchus, which is fantastic. And I want to talk about the contents of this beautiful book in a moment. But before we do that, I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about your background first and what led you to become a writer? Well, uh, I like to read books from when I was little. So I grew up in Bekasi. It's like the suburban cities surrounding Jakarta. My father is a journalist. He's a reporter for a newspaper in Jakarta. He always brings newspaper every day, and then I like to read news. We don't have many books a lot when I was little, so that's how I pick up reading, by reading newspaper. And then because our family is a Christian, I, I like to read Bible as a story, as a fiction. And then I like to read like Harry Potter, and then that's how I want to be a writer, because I, I read about J.K. Rowling, and she was a kind of like poor when she was writing Harry Potter and it resonates with me. The idea of by doing writing, you can change your life in terms like you can be a better person because I read that J.K. Rowling had a depression when she wrote Harry Potter. What kind of writing excited you? You said you were reading uh, newspaper articles and then you you discovered the Harry Potter. So was it fiction that, that was really where you thought you would do your oh, work? I live in a very rural area in Bekasi. So, and our family never travel a lot because we don't have like the fun to do that. And then there is one time when I was five years old when we visit uh, my father's hometown in uh, North Sumatra. That was the first time I feel like I saw the world and I wanted to do that more. And then newspaper gives them access to see the rest of the world from like your own house. That's also why I like Harry Potter, for example, because it gives you a glimpse of a, another life that, is, that isn't yours. Yeah, exactly. So how do you describe your writing now that you do? You write poetry and short stories, and are you writing a novel, is that right? Yeah, I'm writing a novel. Uh, well, uh, right now I see writing is very, uh, as a, something very different from when I initially, when I was little, I see reading as a something kind, kind of like a microscope or like binocular to see the world. Well, when you write, you try to give someone uh, the microscope. You give other people the binocular. You give other people a glimpse to a fictional or like non-fictional life. 
that you present in your writing. So right now it's kind of like uh, sharing. I, I saw writing as sharing to others. So telling the stories of others. Yeah, because I feel like when I grew up, I was a very sad little kid, kind of, because like I have so many anger and I don't have ways to tell them. I didn't know how to navigate between anger and sadness. But when I start writing seriously, I see the possibility of make my feelings known. And then, uh, and it also gives you distance to the, to the people who read the stories, the poems, because they don't look at you when they do that. Mm-hmm. So I see that as an act of sharing. Wow, I love that description. Now, you yourself have been described by other writers, and I wonder how you respond to it, is this idea of being a multiple outsider in Indonesian society. How does that label sit with you? Okay, that label is in English, right? Yeah. I I don't live in English every day. I usually talk uh, in Indonesian. Mm -hmm. But when people sometimes mention me as multiple outsider, I saw that as a funny phrase. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's common in Indonesia when people talk about gay people, when people talk about queer people, it's as if they are people they don't know. Like none, none of the person in their life is gay, as if none of the person in their life is queer. It's easier for people to like just use the label outsider or like, oh, they are like so underground, for example. When actually we live under the sun, we live, we live inside, we live around you. We might be your brother, we might be your daughter. And then the idea that somewhere out there someone is gay is, I think, kind of like making it harder to normalize being queer. Mm-hmm. But then I think, for example, as a writer, I want to show to people that we are always around. We have always been around. We are not new. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and so the the label is put on you by others, as you've said, and it's because of you being gay, but also being Christian in a majority Muslim setting. How, is that another layer that you engage with too in your writing, your Christianity? Yeah, I think I think it's quite complex because I came from a Batak family, and Batak is today is known as kind of like very muscular. The male in Batak mostly like very muscular, while I am like visibly effeminate from when I was little. So mm. it's quite hard to like navigate your life in Bekasi as an effeminate Christian Batak man because it just doesn't make sense for anyone. Right. But then I dislike the idea of being multiple outsider. It's as if I have a choice to be outside. Yeah, no, I, I, I was really interested. I thought your response might be that. Yeah. yeah, it's as if I have the choice to be outside or as if I leave myself in a closed house but when I actually live just like the other person next to me. So mm. I feel like the idea of marginalized person mm. in a marginalized community, it's a bit hard to like navigate. Sometimes when people say label like multiple outsider, they don't realize there are also people with that complicated layer of identities in their communities, mm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So when I say the word minority, I mean less Mm-hmm. in terms of numbers, but more of powers and access. And power can be many things. It can be financial, it can be social, it can be structural. So when I say minorities, it's all it's all about power mm-hmm. and less about numbers. So I say it in, in writing, look at how their minorities live. Listen more yeah. rather than like, um, I don't know, assume, just listen. Mm-hmm. Listen and listen because sometimes people like to, to just assume because it's easier while... Listening is hard. That's why it has meaning, because listening is hard. 
Very. I agree. In the recent elections, Norman, there was a really strong focus on the views of younger voters and the teams were all trying to attract the younger vote. You've spoken about your frustration with your country and your real desire for change. Do you think that that is a sentiment that many young people share in Indonesia, this dissatisfaction and a desire for change? I, I talk as a queer person. So when many queer persons, people like uh, say they are like dissatisfied with the country, I think it's more about the system. We are dissatisfied with the system, with the politics system, with the electoral system, which is very, we see, I feel very have a hetero space. So as a queer, I saw electoral politics as a hetero people fighting with other hetero people for power. And the life of, of queer are like marginalized as a sub-issue. So we can hope the people we vote might be more progressive. I think you, you've seen about the gold put movement, the sure. absent mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also because of that, because we are tired by the by the system, we are tired with how things are run. Not only the people who run it, but also with how things are run. Like the system can only be beneficial to you if you have at least a minimum social privilege. Yeah. For example, like if you are queer or like if you are like Christian or, or if you are Chinese, I think the system can be very harmful. But then to, to actually change the system, it requires maybe like, I don't know, like a whole country agreeing to change it. But then I, I, I don't know how to do that. But so for now, let's just be angry, I guess. Okay, so anger is going to be the immediate response. And that seems to have been what we have seen, haven't we, in the last few weeks on the streets of Jakarta and around the country. There is a palpable anger, perhaps, you know, with the the actual election and the way it was run. But as you're saying, with the uh, system, there's been that sense of impotence for people to have actually made any difference through their vote. About the anger, do you... Feel that more more broadly in Indonesia. Are you sensing it? Oh, so the thing about anger, I think how to say, like somehow it is also important to periksa diri to self-reflecting. I guess so. When I saw anger in TV, it's like for me, it's I saw it as like similar to white anger in in the, in the America, of, for example. It's anger by people who actually has the power. Mm-hmm. So for the election, I heard of this term a lot. We won an, a Muslim president. I heard that sentence a lot. We won a Muslim president. While, for example, we always have a Muslim's presidents. Like none of the presidents we had in the past was one Muslim. All of them are Muslim. So it's important for me to self-reflect before you you are angry, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 saw, I, I say this to, to those people who like doing the march in the street a few days ago because like they are angry but then I don't know why because I I feel like today it became so complicated that it is hard to like even form a thought Mm -hmm. because like everything is so messy for example sometimes I feel like it's better to like just be silent not silent as in the term of like being silent about voicing your opinion but silent in terms of like you you give time to process information yeah like how to say in Christianity there is a concept of satadu. Like 
you 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 give time in the morning to read the Bible and and reflect. So I I feel like if we have some time to be silent, mm-hmm. uh, to reflect, it's gonna be better rather than being so active on social media and like commenting everything like a yeah. few seconds after we read it. We read about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, absolutely know what you mean. Being more wisely reactive. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, so responding after some reflection is much more constructive. Would you describe yourself as an activist, Norman? I don't know how to answer that because I don't know what the word means for you. I don't know what the word means for other people. Like, if the word for me, yes, of course, but... I don't know what the word activist means for anyone, so it's hard to answer. I guess I could frame it like organizationally. Are you someone who is involved in organizations that work for change or support? Of course, I see my writing as an activism, and I was involved with organization, people, but then I'm also a person who believes in small change. Mm-hmm. Because it is easier to like uh, help yourself accountable. So I am more comfortable like doing small movements rather than like making a big movement with people because it was harder to make yourself accountable to your ideologies, to your thoughts. Yeah. So through your stories, you are telling these lives and you were describing how minorities live as being important in that. In your book, Sergius Seeks Bacchus, which has just been published in English translation, there's a, quite a few poems, am I right, that are quite autobiographical. Is that right? Yeah. Um, let's just say I challenged the idea of nonfiction. Because, like, of course, it, it was drowned from my own life. But then uh, I also feel uncomfortable as, if people say that my poems are nonfiction because I try to actually challenge the reality, like maybe, like, crack it crack the reality. Does it require an element of courage to tell your stories so openly, including these stories in this book where there's so much sadness, where there's often violence within your experience, within your lived experience? For me, it feels like that would require a lot of courage. But how does it feel for you? Uh, to be honest, I, I rarely think about courage. I don't think I ever really think about it because what, what I know is I want real change. I am I am sad, I am angry, and I like to write. So I, I think it's less about courage. When you feel like under you is like a rupture, you will try to get, get out mm. from that, I think. So maybe it's not courage, but more like a desire to to get out. Even if, if it's like imaginary departing yeah. through fiction. Mm-hmm. So even if it's only imaginary, I will take that. I think... For writers, writing can be a way to escape reality, but also dig deeper. Yeah. Yeah. In Indonesia in the last several years, there has been a rise in anti-gay rhetoric and in homophobia and in discrimination against LGBT groups. And how has that impacted on you? Has that just emboldened you more in your work? Perhaps it has. When we talk about the recent development about Indonesia and regarding its homophobic gestures. I mean, it's not new. It's it's from day zero in my life, I guess. So I think for other people, like, like for example, for you, you might ask us, what's your opinion about it? And while we are here, we are so, how to say, we, we've been facing it every day so that we don't have any opinion about it rather than, oh yeah, kind of thing. So I think about the 
Indonesia being more homophobic. It's also about social media. Like we are very visible because we are not like the, the typical face that you see. So maybe it's because of the social media and then people think us as something new. Hmm. So I think as as a writer, what I want to, I think all of the queer people, we won't just want to say we've always been here, like from long ago, like from long ago. So it's not us. It's not us who should have been asked this question. You should ask this to hetero people. Mm-hmm. What yeah. do you? You should ask this to them. What do you feel about the recent homophobic gestures in mm-hmm. Indonesia? You should because we have been feeling this from long ago. Look, from day one, mm-hmm. from day zero, I guess. A theme within this collection of poems is this constant conflict between truth and truth-telling and secrets and the perception that truth can sometimes be dangerous if it gets out and the need to keep the secrets. You've said once that you've asked the question, why can't there be more than one truth? Can you expand on what you mean by that? I think I said that in, in Ubud Festival. Mm-hmm. So... It's, it's actually about how language shape our lives. In Indonesian, people seldom said kebenaran, kebenaran, as in like truth in plural form. Or even like uh, when, you, when we talk about many things, we don't, we don't use the plural form a lot. So I think it normalizes the idea of one truth in Indonesian mind because we, we just don't include it in our daily life about the idea of truth being plural. I am a person who believes language states what we do in life. So when we change the language, it changes how we live. If we use a truth, kebenaran, in the singular form all the time, we believe that truth is singular. Now, I think it's a really interesting theme that has such broad and interesting applications when we think about approaches to Indonesia's history and all well, the history of any nation really in terms of the one defining truth that's often represented as, as the official truth. When you talk about history, it's usually an official version that the government approves or yeah. other version that is written by, by historians. I'm more interested in secrets, in memory, because memory is an official history that no one, how to say, like no one records it, mm-hmm. even though like memory is something that helps us decide our next step for the future. So when I wrote my book, Sergio Six Bacchus, my focus is what has been in the mind of the people, even people who are erased from history, people who are taken out from the official history, what has been in their memory. I think it's the book is more about that. If we read Indonesian history, you will, I think, find almost zero queer person in the history. I mean, if we talk about proclamasi, is there any gay person in the room when Sukarno read the proclamasi text? So I think it's a question we, we should ask ourselves today. Mm-hmm. So because it's an error sure. So what I want to do with my book is resisting that. I want to resist queer erasure in history by presenting memory. Indeed. And recently, Norman, Indonesian literature has featured very prominently at international writers' festivals, including Frankfurt and London, which has seen more Indonesian writers translated into English, for example. What impact has that had, do you think, on Indonesian literature, both at home and how it's being received internationally? I feel like 
I don't want to obsess with English translation that much. So, because when we talk about world literature, we always talk about English translation mostly. Mm. And I want to talk more about other languages like Vietnamese, Thai. So when I talk about Indonesian literature at the moment, I would say I want more Indonesian literature to be translated into other Southeast Asian languages rather than to read more English translation yeah. from Indonesian work. But I'm happy we have more writers because they can challenge assumption that other countries have towards Indonesia. Like, for example, I love Row Books uh, publishing Intan Paramadita's Apple and Knife because it challenged the assumption that Indonesian uh, doesn't have feminist writers. We, we have a lot of feminist writers, but of course they are not published yet into other languages. So when Intan is published, I'm very happy and like I want more Indonesian feminist writers to be read internationally and by internationally, not just in English, but in Thai, in Vietnamese, in Chinese. Is there an engagement, you know, kind of regional exchange of writers in Southeast Asia? Is there something going on there through ASEAN or any other organization building up something like that? A network? Uh, yeah, of course. So, so my connection in Southeast Asia is mostly informal, just uh, being friends with other writers. But we have many initiatives, I think, that, that is quite cool. Mm-hmm. For example, Intersastra, that is like managed by Eliza Fitri Handayani. Yeah. Uh, it published translation to Indonesian of writers from other countries. And in Vietnam, there is a jar press that published Indonesian poets. In Vietnamese? Yeah, they translate Indonesian poems into Vietnamese. Mm. And then last year, I helped my friend in Singlets in Singapore to run Southeast Asia Poetry Writing Month in Facebook. So I feel like yeah, we are going that way to right. more like a voice as more as a Southeast Asians because I feel like this region has very complex and rich history and then we shouldn't go alone and as a writer and it's more exciting if we can gather together. Yeah, 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 I get it. This year you were at the London Book Fair where Indonesia was featured and as it had been at Frankfurt just a year or so before that. What are those events like, those massive international book fairs? And having Indonesia the focus, what was that like? London Book Fair is so tiring, I have to say. Yeah. Because it's like an airport, but for <laughs> books. Right. And I am a very small festival person. I don't know. Yep. I, is, is that make sense? Yeah. Does it make sense? Yeah. So in the London Book Fair, I feel very overwhelmed by so many people just yeah. talking about books. <laughs> yeah, the scale. But yeah, and then I have some criticism about it, maybe, but more because it used government's money, tax money. So I was think that much money can be more beneficial if they put it as a, a translation grant initiative mm-hmm. or like building library in the in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. But then I also appreciate because they fund my trip to London and then I can, I can launch and, my book in yeah, person. Right. Uh, but then I also feel, I don't know, I feel like it's so colonial to be saturated that much about London Festival. Mm-hmm. I want Indonesia to make appearance in, for example, Bangkok Book Festival or mm-hmm. like Vietnamese International Book Fair. So we can be like yeah. more about 
how we make community here, mm-hmm. I, I guess. Mm-hmm. And what about Australia? How does Australia fit in? Because you've been here a few times, yeah? Or uh, you're coming I've again? I've been there you? one time. One time. You're coming again. So <laughs> I'm coming again. Where does Australia uh, fit? <laughs> I think it's it's really, I don't know, it's, it's so strange that we don't have many Australian books to be translated into Indonesian. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a lot of Indonesian books to be published in Australia. Yeah. I think it's so weird. Mm. I mean, like, I don't think we have any Aboriginal authors to be published in Indonesia. So we need to change that. Yeah. I mean, we are so close. And then when I hear Aboriginal language, I, I can hear some phrase yeah. similar to my own Batakness language. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, oh, we have, we have this connection that is lost. I yeah. don't know what to say. No, I agree. I, I think it's important to bridge that relationship in terms of literature. Mm-hmm. So Good. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, to get someone here publish Alan Panerfin. Oh, yeah. So I think, I hope it, it become a real thing. Oh, oh gosh. Well, good luck. There are people who agree with you that there's not many Australian stories in Indonesian language and vice versa here as well. But we now have your wonderful book of poetry on our shelves. So that's something. So we can share that with everyone. So, you know, you have done this, been out in the region and Europe and Australia. So has it changed your outlook or the international exposure you've had? Has it changed your outlook on your work? you writing a novel tell us about that what, what's your novel about uh, my novel is about how the idea of being batak changed over the years the word batak was invented not by batak people but by malayu people so i want to investigate that in my novel mm-hmm. but then oh I, it was so funny when you when you mentioned about uh, how your outlook on your work or in future. Because when I was in London, there's one time I met in a reading professor of a, uni- a local university there. And then she asked to me, I'm teaching Virginia Woolf. Have you heard of Virginia Woolf? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> did, did she just, I was like, so maybe um, mm-hmm. if you say outlook, I try to be neutral because I don't want people to ask if I ever read Virginia Woolf anymore. <laughs> but then um, I'm also happy to encounter so many good hearted people along the way. Like to be honest, I never thought my event in London would yeah. be full house. Right. It's it's to be to be honest, I'm I'm surprised and happy. So yeah, I feel like there are so many good people, maybe as much as bad people, but you just have to like find them. And in that moment, how did you respond to her? Did you say, of course, I've heard of Virginia Woolf or? So I just read the most Virginia Woolf poem after that. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know because I, I, I am very much, how to say, like a very bubbly, cheerful person. Mm-hmm. So you will, last, you, you will see me angry in person less. It's rare. After that, she changed. Yeah, I bet she did. <laughs> this is a little bit, and you know, your translator Tiffany Zhao has written about this very point, Norman, about the what she called condescending attitudes of Anglophone publishers and advocates. And I guess that's what you encountered in that moment, in that interview. I think what Tiffany said is very important. We both read a short story when we were in London, and then the translator said something like, this story is deceptively simple. So the translator of that short story 
use this uh, the phrase deceptively simple as if we will think that it's simple so we will think that it's not complicated not complex not sophisticated so i think mm. when tiffany said about condescending notion it's also about how people of english will assume that indonesian literary work is not good mm. while in i think many indonesian literary work are cool so maybe yeah. we, we should maybe english people should how to say decolonize their mind and see indonesia as equal yeah oh i agree and that's part of what we kind of try to do here on talking indonesia so yep <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're on the same page. And with that, I will say thank you so much for joining us and good luck for the book. And we look forward to welcoming welcoming you here in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. See you in Melbourne. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Norman Erickson Pasaribu. Norman's book of poetry, Sergius Six Bacchus, translated by Tiffany Zhao, is published by Giramondo Poets. Look out for Norman later this year at the Melbourne International Writers' Festival. Talking Indonesia will return on the 27th of June, hosted by Dirk Thompson. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.